From the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies, this is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, Pardes Alam. This week, Kitisa. This week, Nechama Golan Barash discusses Kitisa. Nechama Golan Barash is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Nechama Golan Barash. In this week's parasha, Kitisa, we will see the challenge of building an ongoing relationship between God and the children of Israel in the absence of the outward presence of the divine as been, has been experienced until now from the time of the Exodus through the divine revelation at Sinai. The climax of the parasha is the seminal story of the worship of the golden calf, which calls into question whether the chosen people are actually worthy of chosenness. The aftermath of this enormous rupture between God and the children of Israel will direct the course of their relationship as both sides strive for reconciliation, which in the end only succeeds because of the fierce intervention and mediation of Moses, whose relationship with God and the people will also irrevocably change in the aftermath of the event. Rabbinic interpretation equates the sin of the golden calf to the fall of Eden in which humans transgress, causing the exile from Eden and the beginning of a different relationship between man and God from there on in. It is interesting that there are many linguistic and literary comparisons between the story of Eden and the revelation at Sinai. Like the creation story, at Sinai there is a feeling of the world being created. The nation is trembling, the mountain is trembling, the world according to the Midrash is literally holding its breath. If the nation does not accept the Torah, says the Talmud, the world will return to tohu vavohu, unformed chaos. Acceptance of Torah is one of the precursors for the continuation of the world's existence. Yet despite that transcendent experience, the people sin with the golden calf a short time later. And the sin of the golden calf seems to be a rejection of what acceptance of Torah represents. After all, the third commandment prohibits creating and worshiping any image of God. And here, in the best case scenario, they have created an image of God to worship. In the worst case scenario, they have violated the second commandment and are worshiping another god, which is an even graver transgression. This act will test the very fiber of the relationship between God and Israel. Should God just start again as he did with Noah in the generation of the flood? He threatens to do so when he tells Moses to step aside and allow him to destroy the nation and make of Moses a great nation. Well, we'll have to wait and see what happens a little further along in the podcast. For now, I want to go back, as promised, to the connection between Eden and Sinai, or original sin and the golden calf. An interesting connection between the stories appears in the usage of the word boshesh, which appears only two times in the Torah. The first time it appears is in Genesis, before Adam and Eve sin. And the two were naked, the man and his wife, velohit bosheshu, they were not ashamed, from the root boshesh, or bushah. This seems to fit well well with the best-known definition of shame, which is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. In Eden, they had no shame over their nakedness because they they had no consciousness of doing something wrong. In our portion, Kitisa, it appears as follows. When the people saw that Moshe boshesh in coming down from the mountain, which is often translated as took too long, which seems to have no connection to the boshesh we saw in Breshit, the word linked to shame. To summarize again, in Breshit, the word seems to mean they were not ashamed. In Shemot, it seems to mean Moshe was delayed. How can such different word usages be connected? I saw an idea in the Imek Davar that might help explain the word usage in both stories by broadening the context to include a time element. He explains that they were naked and were able to stand before God nonetheless in Eden. They were both able to have sexual relations and mystical union with God simultaneously. There was no delay or no need for a delay between one act and the other, something that, of course, becomes impossible after the sin. 
For instance, at Sinai we see a separation of men from women is required to purify themselves from sexual impurity before receiving the Torah. Back to the Eden story, eating the forbidden fruit introduced a consciousness of time with past, present, and future. And so every action is forever after measured by what comes before and what comes after. So it becomes impossible to engage in sexual relations and mystical union with God. Those are going to take up two different time frames. Moving to our Torah portion of Kitisa, there is also a time element. Moshe has delayed to return. One translation I saw in the BDB dictionary translates the word boshesh as delay and shame, influenced by its clear connection to busha in Genesis, but adding the time delay element because of its usage in Shemot. There is something shameful in his de- delay, or so the word implies, and this is the cause for the nation's downfall. The same word with some connection to time allows us to connect the two stories, at least linguistically, and understand the turning point in the story. After the sin in Eden, time now brings with it past, present, and future. They are now too well acquainted with Busha. Moshe has delayed, and in his delay, doubt is cast over the past and future relationship with God and with his Torah. Midrash plays with this time dimension by playing with the word six, Shesh in Boshesh, and as fall and suggests that Moshe was delayed by six hours, leading Satan to confuse the people and tempt them to sin. In other words, I'm only bringing the midrash to show that they too were aware that there was a time element in the word Boshesh that somehow led to the shameful or foolish behavior. And again, an interesting podcast might explore was Moshe's delay somehow shameful, culpable in the trigger of the sin for another time. What we have seen up until now is a word that connects the two stories as a way of linking two moments in the narrative, first of mankind in the Garden of Eden, and then specifically the Jewish nation, where the power of free will given to human beings determines the trajectory of their future existence in the aftermath of choice. Here too in Kitisa, there is the potential to overcome the temptation to make the wrong choice, However, to quote Benina Neubert, standing at Sinai opened a window of opportunity. B'nai Israel could have returned to the Garden of Eden to renew their days as of old. But just as Adam and Eve fell, so too the children of Israel fell with the golden calf. Both stories are infuriating. So much bounty promised to mankind, so much power put into their hands, and yet they lose entire worlds in one hurried, impulsive moment. What I would like to continue with now that we understand the powerful role free choice plays in both stories, and of course in determining the choices we make and the consequence of such choices, is the potential for rehabilitation even in the aftermath of transgression by recognizing that throughout our lives there are constant opportunities for growth. This is true in our relationship with God and in our relationship with one another. And sometimes the same object or emotion or situation can be a vehicle for mindful awareness and growth or alternatively for regression, alienation, and disruption. The placement of this narrative illustrates well the point I am trying to make, highlighting the link between the calf and the tabernacle. In both instances, the people are invited to donate gold for the construction and do so willingly. The gold is then used to manufacture the ritual object, and upon its completion, the people offer sacrifices and celebrate. To quote the women's Torah commentary, these similarities set into sharp relief the crucial difference between the tabernacle, which is sanctioned by God, and the calf, which is condemned as a fatally inappropriate ritual object. 
The overlap between these two forms of mediation demonstrates how complex the questions of divine mediation and religious representation are, end of quote. The same object, gold donated by the nation, can bring the divine presence to rest among us or can lead us to the brink of religious annihilation. It is a terrible but fundamental lesson to learn. There is no magic potion or wand that automatically brings us to redemption. There is only disciplined boundaries and the following of rules set by God that can infuse something with the potential for meaning. It is the lesson Adam and Eve had to learn in the Garden of Eden as well. All of the fruit was theirs for the taking, except from the fruit from one particular tree. This limitation then imbued all the other trees with the distinction of permitted, in contrast to the prohibited, and it should have made them desirous in their permissibility. Instead, the snake seduced Eve by understanding that it is the forbidden fruit which looks eternally sweeter. However, the discipline to choose otherwise, to stand firm in commitment to God's word, is at the heart of religious submission. In other words, accepting the restrictions placed by God are what brings us close or distances us from his presence. Gold, when used in the tabernacle, even when turned into the form of cherubim, is permitted by divine order and brings us closer and draws God's presence into our midst. Using the same material to form a calf, even if it is, in the best case scenario, in the service of God, is a flagrant violation of the religious order demanded by him and thus alienates and is destructive. In the aftermath of the sin, what can we learn about sustaining ongoing relationships in the face of rupture and betrayal? What are the tools for successful reconciliation? I would like to point to three verses that possibly get swallowed up in the greater narrative, but serve to suggest a direction when answering the questions about rebuilding and reconciling, certainly in our relationship with God. In the aftermath of the sin, after Moses comes down and Moses has rebuked them and a plague has been sent and God has threatened to destroy them, the people, at their own initiative, remove their finery, meaning their adornments. I'm in chapter 33, verse 4. When the people heard these harsh words, they went into mourning and none put on his finery. As a sign of mourning, they instinctively understand that they must remove the objects that were misused in the construction of the calf. Furthermore, I would suggest that they must mourn the end of the relationship they have had with God until the golden calf incident. Ornaments and adornments suggest celebration, an entitlement that came with their chosen status. The removal of the finery reflects the beginnings of recognition of guilt, the seeds of shouldering responsibility, and the incipient yearning that things be different. It suggests the stirring of repentance for the sin of the golden calf. The next verse shows the impact this action has on God. Chapter 33, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now then, leave off your finery, and I will consider what to do to you. God reiterates his anger, anger, nay despair, over the people's behavior. He cannot allow himself to go in their midst, or he will destroy them, even after Moses has desperately and successfully stayed off such an action. What an antithesis to the potential of Asuli Mikdash Vishachanti Betocham. Build me a tabernacle, and I will come to dwell among you, which we saw in the chapter a portion of Truma. There God suggested a path that would lead him into the camp to dwell intimately among his people. Now he is letting Moses know such an entry will only lead to destruction. He must have distance from them, or his anger will, anger will be unleashed, even though he has already promised Moses not to destroy them. But the end of the verse gives a hint of change. Leave off your finery, and I will consider what to do to you. 
This, to me, to me, illustrates the man in search of God and God in search of man continuum. The children of Israel have acted first in search of reconciliation. They have removed their finery. God in his anger seeks distance, but suddenly he notices, acknowledges this movement towards them. If they continue on this path of accepting responsibility and truly seeking reconciliation, God will consider what to do in light of the direction they have already begun moving in. There is hope. There is a way back. The power to change or alleviate his anger is in their hands, even if it will be gradual and with obvious consequence. Their initiation in verse 4 of removing finery has led God to change course. This is emblematic of repentance. After all, we say on the high holidays, three things change the course of a decree, repentance, prayer, and charity. Here in these verses, we see an echo of what we pray for in those prayers. The last verse, verse 6, further this idea of a transition taking place in the story. So the Israelites remained stripped of their finery from Mount Chorev on. The word remains stripped of their finery links us back to an early usage of this verb used to describe the spoils taken from the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. 1236. In the Exodus story, the finery they endured themselves with when they left Egypt, taken from the Egyptians after centuries of slavery, represented a reversal in fortune, a physical symbol of the gifts bestowed by God as they hastened towards freedom. This is the finery they proudly wore at Sinai to represent their chosenness. This is the finery that they contributed to the tabernacle. And finally, tragically, these are the ornaments that were used in their downfall in building the golden calf. Here in this final verse, they are exposed and bare, naked before God, and denuded of the physical and spiritual finery bestowed upon them during the exodus from Egypt and at Sinai. Only now into this place can God decide how to proceed. Only now can there begin to be the stirrings of a newly born relationship, stripped of all artifice, aware of the past and the present, but hopeful for a different future. Before concluding, there is one more point to make. In Exodus 35... We have a retelling of the building of the tabernacle, and here too gold is a central material used in its construction, even after the sin of the golden calf. Exodus 35, verse 22, men and women, all whose hearts moved them, all who would make an elevation offering of gold to the Lord, came bringing brooches, earrings, rings, and pendants, gold objects of all kinds. In general, the repetition of the last two partiate of the book of Exodus, which brings again countless details of the tabernacle, are best explained if we think about life before the golden calf and after. There is a sameness to the retelling, but the relationship has been fundamentally changed and the aftermath, the shadow of the betrayal lingers. But the Torah suggests that God and the people will continue on and the vehicle of the tabernacle and the vehicle of gold in the tabernacle nonetheless build a space that will contain the Shekhinah despite the breach, and due to the ongoing repair, such a breach will continuously require from the people. There is a Midrash in Shir Hashirim, Midrash Zuta Shir Hashirim, that describes or interprets the verse, Shora Ani V'nava, I am black and beautiful. And the author asks, is it possible for something black to be beautiful? I'm going to skip the mashal, the parable, and I'm going to quickly go to the nimshal, the message of the parable. I am blackened by the sin of the golden calf, but I am beautified by the tabernacle, writes the Midrash. The author 
has been blackened by the sun. It will take much time before she can regain her former beauty, but she is hopeful that the black is not permanent and that it will eventually come off. The lesson to the parable is actually much deeper and more powerful. The children of Israel have been blackened by the gold used in the golden calf, and they are beautified by the gold used to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle built after the sin permanently brings to mind associations of the golden calf and along with it, the rehabilitative process undertaken by God in Israel. The memory of the sin is made all the more beautiful for the transformation undertaken after the sin in the coming together of people and God within the space of the tabernacle. The gold of the tabernacle can always turn into the gold of the golden calf, and vice versa. It is only the power of the choices we make that decides what it will be. I want to end with a quote from Zoe Klein at the end of the parsha in the Women's Torah Commentary. Every day a voice comes forth from Sinai and begs your answer, Would you be willing to spend your life with me, asks God? End of quote. This awareness of past, present, and future, of ongoing potential encounters, of ruptures, betrayals, and transgressions, and of the, on the ongoing eternal possibility for reconciliation and growth, with the aspiration of deepening a relationship with the divine covenant handed down from Sinai, is ultimately what I believe this Torah portion can teach us and ultimately help us answer that question, would you be willing to spend your life with me, asks God? Let us hope we can all say yes. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Nechama. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.